Our series for the summer is The Letter to the Philippians, and we find ourselves in the second chapter of this letter. So if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Uh, The passage is also printed for you in the worship guide, so you're welcome to just follow along there as well. So like I said, we are in the second chapter of this letter, and this morning we are going to take a look at verses 12 through 18 of chapter 2. A little bit of background, uh, review is always good for all of us, and especially for those of you who are just coming into it this morning, Um, I'm sure you would appreciate a little bit of context. Our theme or the title of our series is Partners in the Gospel. The reason that we have used that uh, phrase or title to capture this series is because the Apostle Paul and the Christians in the city of Philippi are very much partners together in the work of the gospel. Paul even, as we've already seen, uses the word partnership in his letter to them. Now, where is Paul when he writes this letter and when does he write? Well, it's most likely about 62 A.D., And the circumstances that Paul finds himself in is that he is under house arrest in Rome. He does not know what his future holds, whether he will be released or executed. Uh, This has been, uh, this has characterized Paul's life really from the time that he became a follower uh, of Jesus. Paul has been beaten, he's been imprisoned for his faith, and so this situation that Paul finds himself in is... um, not unusual for him. And he writes this letter to encourage his, encourage his friends because the church in Philippi, as we've already established, were his friends. So he writes to encourage them, to thank them, and to build them up in their faith. Last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 2, and we broke it up into two sections. First, the story of Jesus, and then second, the story of Jesus through his people, through us. And my hope is that, particularly as we focused in on those verses that essentially tell the story of Jesus, my hope is that we were captivated by that, that we were captivated by the beauty of Jesus, who he is as a person, and also his sacrificial life and death on our behalf. Because what Paul is doing in this letter is he's holding up Jesus as a pattern for our imitation. Now, we talked about we we can't just simply imitate Jesus. That's not necessarily what we're called to. Jesus was unique as the Son of God, the one who died for sins. Uh, We can't do that. But when it comes to the sacrificial uh, life of Jesus, the way that he gave his life up for others, we're called to imitate that pattern. And so those verses in in early on in chapter 2, we're going to see Paul build from that. Let me read for us 12 through 18. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, 
holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out, uh, that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll dig in. Holy Spirit, you are active. You are in our midst. Draw us into the word of Jesus that we might see him. And we pray that this would not be an exercise in abstraction, but that it would be an exercise in reality because your word, your story tells the true story of the world. And so I pray that as we're drawn into this text, that you would change us, that you would change our minds, that you would change our hearts, that you would change our very lives, that we might live reflective of your people in the world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin with a quote from a theologian named Kevin Van Hooser. Kevin Van Hooser uh, writes this. I think we we have a slide for it um, on the screen that's coming up. When doctrine fails to relate to life, it becomes an argument against the truth of Christianity. When doctrine fails to relate to life, it becomes an argument against the truth of Christianity. We could say that this summarizes really the entire uh, Bible, particularly the New Testament, But since we are in the letter to the Philippians, we're focusing there. And we could for sure say that this quote basically is a summary of Paul's heart as he writes to the church in Philippi. He does not want the Christians in Philippi to relate to the teaching of Christianity, to relate to the doctrine of Christianity apart from life. He doesn't want them to approach Christian truth as this abstraction, simply something that they believe and then get on with their lives. He wants it to be real. He wants it to grip them because if not, it can possibly become an argument against the truth of Christianity. Do you resonate with that at all? I know times in my own life where I I get a little distant from, from Jesus, from the truth about him. Um, maybe I, I'm just going through the motions, I'm, I'm reading the Bible, maybe I'm even reading doctrine and theology, but my, my heart is a little off, right? You, you know what this is like, I know that you do, and there's distance, and you're taking in all of this information, and yet your heart remains far, and all of it just seems very abstract, and there's a sense in which, because of where your heart is, you're almost making a case for the truth against Christianity. Now, this can happen in our own personal lives, but it also happens in the world around us. We see this all the time. If you um, turn on the media or you read um, stuff online, how is the church, how are Christians um, presented um, in our culture? Not very positively, right? Now, some of that, sure, we could... Um, write it off and say, oh, well, they're just out against Christians. But let's be honest. We have brought much of that upon ourselves. And so, again, we've taken the truth of Christianity, presented it as somewhat of an abstraction, and it's actually caused people to say, understandably so, well, I don't see what's real about that, and they walk away. Paul does not want that to happen in the lives of these Philippians, and he doesn't want it to happen 
as they um, live out their witness in the city of Philippi to others. And this is just how life works. Take anything, whether it's information or um, instructions about something. It doesn't really become real until you play around with it, until you get your hands dirty, until you work it out, right? You know, it could be easy to read a set of instruction manuals. It can be easy to hear somebody else talk about something, but not until you do it, until you seek to work it out, does it become real. That's what Paul has in mind here. And so he tells the Philippians, and this is basically the the big idea of this morning's sermon, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Now, as we're going to see, there's both an inward and an outward aspect to this. So let's first look at the inward aspect of this idea of working out our salvation. Paul says it there clearly toward the end of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does Paul mean by these words, work out your salvation? These words have been argued about, misunderstood for much of church history, basically ever since Paul wrote these words down. They've created confusion. The reason that they've created confusion is because if we have been trained well in discipleship, if we have um, really come to understand and grasp the truth that is at the heart of the Christianity, which we call the gospel, gospel literally just simply means the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done, if we've really come to grasp that news, that message, what we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, right? There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God. In other words, our effort, our works don't merit us favor or relationship with God. That's good Christianity. That's true Christianity. But maybe we get a little bit nervous or at least a little bit confused when we come to this passage and we hear, work out your salvation. Wait a second, Paul. Elsewhere you say that um, we are saved by faith alone, by resting and trusting in what Jesus has done, not by what we do. Well, from the beginning, let's be clear. There is no contradiction in Paul's message. There's no contradiction. Paul rejects what we would call salvation by works. That's not what he has in mind here. It's not what he's talking about. These words work out. Every time they're ever used um, in the New Testament, they always have the idea of bringing something to completion. In other words, Paul's saying we could paraphrase it this way, don't stop halfway. You're halfway through the journey. Don't stop now. Continue to work at it. Keep going. Whenever these words are also used, work and do, that you see in the passage, it's always used of God's activity, always of God's action. And so there are two things going on here. One, God's action or activity, and then our action or our activity. And they cooperate together. They're meant to be together. Now, let's continue to unpack this. We can't work out our salvation unless it has already been worked into us. And so that's the 
presumption or the assumption that Paul is making here with the Philippians. Salvation has been worked into them. And how did that happen? They responded to the good news of Jesus through faith, by faith. They trusted in what Jesus did. They recognized that there was nothing that they could do to fix themselves, to make themselves whole, to make themselves right with God. And so they placed their faith totally, utterly in what Jesus had done for them in his life, death, and resurrection. And so salvation had been worked into them. And now it's as though Paul is saying, take that salvation that you did not earn, that you did not achieve, and now work it out in the practicalities of life. Flesh it out. Get your hands dirty. Play with your salvation in a certain sense. Work it out. That's what Paul has in mind. When he says your own salvation, he's not contrasting this with like we've already seen, God's work in salvation, he's contrasting it with, well, think about it this way. How does Paul begin these verses? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only so as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So Paul is currently absent from them, and that's going to be the way it remains um, until Paul loses his life. When Paul was present with them, It had been about 10 years prior to this that Paul was in Philippi. Um, Cool fact that we've mentioned a couple times is that Philippi was the first place in Europe um, where the gospel of Jesus was proclaimed. And so Paul, 10 years prior, had helped to plant this church in the city of Philippi. He was in their midst. Now, what do you think could be a temptation or a tendency to have somebody like Paul that um, these Christians would have looked up to, viewed as maybe the super-Christian, what would have tendency have been to rely maybe a little bit more, too much on Paul's presence and Paul's guidance in discipleship? And so Paul is saying, all right, I'm now absent from you. Work out your own salvation. In other words, take responsibility for your salvation. Don't rely on me from a distance. You don't need me. You need Jesus Work out your faith. Work out your salvation. So what Paul is talking about is growing into maturity, growing into mature disciples of Jesus. And this is a progressive thing, isn't it? doesn't happen instantaneously, unfortunately. It's a process. It's, it's a journey, we could say. It happens progressively throughout time. And so what Paul has in view is work out your salvation day by day. Apply it. Make it practical. Apply it to all the things of life because the gospel applies to everything. In other words, work out in practice what it means that you are saved. We could also say it this way. As one who has been saved by Jesus, demonstrate that. Display that through your life. The word that we could use to define or capture all of this is sanctification. You heard that word? It's a biblical word. It's a theological word. Um, and we um, try to avoid as best as we can to just simply throw around three theological jargon or words without defining them. So let's define sanctification. But as we define it, I think it's also helpful for us to also define the word justification. 
All right, I just threw out another theological word. So, all right, we have two theological words that we're playing around with right now, justification and sanctification. We have the definitions on a slide here for you to see. Um, justification can be defined in this way. Now, th- these come from the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, which um, all ordained um, leaders uh, in our denomination um, agree with. And so um, I would encourage you to quiz Wayne on these because he should have these memorized like right now. Um, so maybe after the service, go up to him and ask him to define these. Wayne, I changed the wording some to make it a little more relatable. So justification is an act of God's free grace whereby he forgives all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, there's a lot there. Uh, I'm not going to, I could preach a sermon on that, but I'm not going to. But here's the idea with justification. It's what we were talking about. We are not saved by our effort. We're not saved by anything that we are due. We are saved by an act of God's free grace, whereby as we place our trust in Jesus, he forgives us of our sins, and we receive the record, the righteousness, the reputation of Jesus as our own. So that's justification. Now sanctification, what Paul is really talking about in this passage. It's the work of God's free grace. So notice, this too is by grace. It's all grace. Salvation from beginning to end is by grace. Even that with which we uh, cooperate in and participate in is still, uh, we're still being empowered by the grace of God throughout whereby we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. So justification, how we are saved. Sanctification is the process by which we are working out our salvation. That's how we could say this. And so when Paul says to work out your salvation, he's talking about sanctification, not justification. He's assuming justification. Why does he say with fear and trembling? that throw you off? Does it make you nervous? Does it mess with your idea or picture of God? What does Paul mean by fear and trembling? Why does he use these words? Well, he's, what he's doing here is he's tapping into his Old Testament knowledge. Now, Paul was Jewish, and um, Paul was a scholar of the Old Testament. So it's no surprise that Paul just very naturally um, is tapping into the Old Testament to inform Uh, his teaching. And that's what he's doing here. And when he talks about fear and trembling, he's not talking about cowering in a corner, hiding away from God. It's not what he's talking about. Fear and trembling doesn't drive us away from God in hiding. Fear and trembling actually causes us to seek God. Now, we'll um, flesh this out a little bit more. One commentator talking about this, I, said, I think he said something that was really helpful. He said that when we really love a person, we are not afraid of what that person may do to us. We are afraid of what we might do to them. I think there's a lot of truth to that. When we really love a person, we are not afraid of what that person may do to us. We are afraid of what we might do to them. So when we really love a person, when we really respect a person, sure, there may be times where we're afraid of their rejection or something like that, but 
It's usually the case in those moments of deepest love, what do we want to do? We want to please that person. We want to make that person happy, right? We want to bring joy to that person. And to not do that, to possibly fall short of that, I think brings about more fear and trembling than thinking about what they might do to us. I think that's a really helpful insight. The idea here is that as we respond to God's deep love for us, and as we grow in our love of Him, as it grows deeper and deeper over time, the less and less that we want to grieve Him, the less and less that we want to displease Him. A word that I think might be helpful here is casualness. Paul is warning against casualness. Now, it is absolutely true that we come to God as we are because of what we read in that definition of justification. We come to God as we are, but there's also a danger in becoming too casual with God um, in, in terms of relating to God as if he were just one of us. I think that sometimes I can be guilty of that even in my own life, and we lose that sense of awe and respect. That's what Paul has in mind here. God is everything that is good. In other words, God is holy. He's set apart. There is no one like God. And so we should have a certain, uh, we should have healthy respect for who God is and live in light of that. Paul does not want them to be anxious. Paul doesn't want them running around in their lives, doing a bunch of Christian stuff, trying to earn God's favor. Uh, Everything that he writes is actually against that. That's not what he wants. It's not what he has in mind whatsoever. Even in verse 14, children of God is a phrase that he uses. He wants us to live in light of our identity, being sons and daughters of Jesus. You are children of God. Live in light of this. This is no casual thing. Think of what God has done for you. The language that we used last week, consider the the extent to which Jesus came to reach you. That's what we're talking about. And we shouldn't be just casual thinking about that. That that should actually affect our heart. It should cause us to, to lean into Um, the faith with greater devotion as our love for Jesus grows and grows. Now, notice how practical it gets. All right, so work out your salvation, basically meaning, okay, take what God has done for you and flesh it out in the everyday stuff of life. What is some of the everyday stuff of life? Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish. Really, really practical stuff here. I I was thinking about this through, uh, as I was reflecting on this passage, I I don't know if that would have been my my next step. I don't know if that's the jump that I would have made, to go from talking about this grand idea of working out your salvation to simply, all right, so in light of that, don't complain or grumble. But of course Paul would do that. Remember the quote from Kevin Van Hooser? When doctrine fails to relate to life, it becomes an argument against the truth of Christianity. He wants the Christian life to be practical in the lives of these believers. So of course he would go go to something as ordinary and mundane and practical as 
Don't grumble or complain. Paul's choice of words recalls the Old Testament yet again. Maybe you're familiar with that part of the Old Testament where Israel has been rescued out of slavery in Egypt. So think about the context here. They've been rescued. God has essentially said that you are my children in the world. I've set my love on you. Now live as my people in the world. And as they journey through the wilderness, what do they do? They grumble and complain. They are not working out their salvation. They're overlooking what God had done for them. Because if they were zoomed in on what God had done for them in their rescue, their devotion would be growing and growing, right? Their hearts would be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude, and it would give shape to the way that they lived their lives, not only in relationship to God, but in relationship to one another. But this can happen so subtly and quickly in our lives We begin to forget the goodness of the gospel, and we dwell on negativity. We dwell on what we lack, what we don't have, and so we end up grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining is a sign of immaturity in the spiritual life. Can't believe I just said that, because I think I grumble and complain a lot. I take that back. I didn't say that wasn't in my notes, but it's true. Grumbling and complaining is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Why is that? Because if we are growing into maturity, if we are growing into our salvation, we are growing in our appreciation for what God has done for us in Jesus, and grumbling and complaining become less and less desirable. They become less and less realities. Why would we grumble and complain? Our hearts are set on what God has done for us in Christ, the hospitality that he has shown, the welcome that he has extended to us in Jesus. And we get to be a part of his family and share in his mission. There's no time for grumbling and complaining as we consider the riches of the gospel that we have in Christ. Without blemish. Does that make you nervous as well? Wait a second. I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm not the kind of Christian who is without blemish. You're right. Um, I'm not the kind of Christian who is without blemish. Um, but it's, I, I, I think, a, a, um, it comes down to movement or direction. In what way are we moving? In what direction are we growing? Are we growing and moving in the, in the direction of becoming um, people who are more and more pure? That's um, the opposite of without blemish, is purity. Are, are, are we growing in our love of the gospel to such a degree that Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf, and all that that entails is warming our hearts, it's changing our hearts, and our desire is to grow into greater Christ-likeness. And as we do that, inevitably, we become people who look more and more like him. In other words, we become people who look more and more pure. One way of getting at this, um, one of the commentators uh, 
pointed this out, is that purity and innocence has to do with being unmixed, unadulterated. So you, you can think of the idea of here of wine not being mixed with water, for example. And so what the words have in mind are unmixed motives, sincerity of thought and character. Do you want to know what this is really getting at? Authenticity. Authenticity. That more and more, or less and less, we are becoming people who say one thing and do another. You see, as we make progress in the spiritual life, more alignment happens in relation to what we say and what we do. That's what Paul is talking about here. So there's an inward aspect of working out our salvation. And this inward aspect has to do with virtue and character formation, growing into greater Christ-likeness, growing into the people that God designed for us to be from the very beginning. Now let's talk about the outward aspect of working out our salvation. Paul continues on after talking about being blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Notice the connection that Paul makes very quickly. He, he's focusing in on what we've labeled as this inward aspect, and now all of a sudden he is talking about an out, outward dimension or an outward aspect, isn't he? So become these kinds of people, not through your own willpower, not through your own strength. Again, in reliance on Christ, work out your salvation, right? Remember that. But do so not simply for your own benefit so that you can say, I'm growing in greater Christ-likeness, but for the life of the world, we could say. I love how he says, in reference to this crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's the ongoing debate, happens in every generation. Is, this, is the twistedness and crookedness of this generation worse than the previous generation? I think it's a futile argument. I think that um, every generation is just as crooked and twisted. Sin is sin. Um, it gets manifested in different ways in different generations for sure, but we live in a fallen world, and that is always the case. This past week, uh, I was on vacation in Maine. Maine is very different than Delaware. Uh, Maine is certainly very different than Wilmington. And one evening, we found ourselves out uh, on a dock over water, looking up at the sky. And one of the ways that Maine is very different than Delaware, you can see many more stars in Maine than you can see here in the sky in Delaware. And so I'm just sitting there overwhelmed by this. Um, I can't help it. I'm philosophical, so I'm just thinking of how big this is and how little I am, and God is the creator of all of this, and, you know, those grand kind of thoughts. Um, but as time went by and the sky got darker and darker, guess what happened? The stars became brighter and brighter. Now, what ended up happening was we decided to go up to the cabin and do some other stuff, and then um, uh, we were going to come back down um, when it got a little bit darker to even see um, how brighter the stars were, stars were in the sky. 
I didn't end up doing that, um, so I can't talk about that experience. I was too cold. I only brought a long sleeve t-shirt, and Maine is also chillier than Delaware in the summertime, at least on certain nights. But I can't help but to think of that imagery as I, I read the words of this text. Sometimes does the darkness, um, does it just seem like it's suffocating you, that it's crowding in? That the darkness of the world, um, the way that sin gets manifested in this generation, um, the injustices of the world, does it just sometimes seem to just pile up and pile up that you can't see beyond it? And you just want to not work out your salvation? Or maybe you want to work out your salvation, but only as far as that inward aspect goes. You just want to receive all the benefits of the gospel for yourself and kind of take that get out of um, free, that get that free card to get uh, out of hell when you die. That's how we often we we do it. And so it's like, all right, I'm just going to be comfortable. I'm not going to worry about the world out there. It's too dark. There's nothing that I can do about it. That is not what Paul is driving the Philippians toward. Work out your salvation, yes, for your own benefit as you grow in Christ's likeness, but also for the benefit of the world, so that you might shine like lights, that you might shine like stars in the darkness of the world. And so I've been encouraged by this verse um, in the last couple of days and thinking about it, because actually, the darker it gets in the world, you know what that means according to the truth of this passage? There's a greater opportunity for us to shine brighter and brighter in the world. So work out your salvation for your own benefit, but not only for your own benefit. Stand out as something beautiful in an ugly world. After this, Paul compares himself to a drink offering that's been poured out. Can you imagine talking about getting to the end of your life and talking in this way? So Paul wants the Philippians to continue to make progress in their spiritual lives. One, so that he will know um, that all of his investment, all of his work has not been in vain. Um, but he, he goes on to talk about it in this way, at, uh, beginning with verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. How can Paul say, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and can rejoice? The only way that you can say that is if you believe that this is life. What is life? Living your life for others. That's what Paul's saying here. For Paul, this is the good life. Why? How? Because it gives him greater access into the life of Christ. Our life is to flow from the life of Christ. And as we've been talking about throughout the letter of Philippians, especially um, the first part of this chapter, is that the life of Christ is a sacrificial life. Remember the main point of last week's sermon? I don't remember it. I was going to try to say it, but I don't remember it. Something along the lines of uh, sacrificial love is the greatest power in the universe, something like that. That's what Paul keeps coming back to throughout this letter. 
That is the good life. That is real living. That is the true life, living for the sake of others. So notice the connection that Paul makes here. Um, I think we have this quote up there too by Henry Nouwen. He says, the spiritual life does not remove us from the world, but leads us deeper into it. Sometimes we create this false dichotomy that, oh, if I'm going to really commit myself to going more deeply in my spiritual life, then that means I'm going to remove myself more and more from the world. No, actually, when we delve into the depths of the spiritual life, in other words, when we delve into the depths of the life of Christ, where does Christ take us? Where did Christ take himself? Into the very heart of the world, laying down his life for others. And so work out your salvation includes live on mission. Live on mission in the world. Think of your life. Think about our life together as a church family, as an opportunity to shine brightly in a dark world. Now, are we going to do that perfectly? Absolutely not. And like we always say, those times when we fail are opportunities for us to still demonstrate the reality of the gospel, to repent, to turn away from our failings, and to receive yet again Christ. And I think that's how, as we look out into the world, or better yet, as the world looks into our way of life, I think that's how that alignment, that greater alignment happens between what we say and what we do. It's repentance. Because there are going, there are going to be times where we are misaligned. And so what do we do? Have we completely and utterly failed? No, we repent and we receive the good news, displaying it to actually be true and to be sufficient for us. The word used for lights here is the same word that is used in the creation story in Genesis 1 of the lights, the sun and the moon, which God set in the sky to give light to the earth. This is our calling. This is our opportunity that we have as God's people. I want to close with this quote from Julie Canlis. When we live our lives as ordinary persons, we become an extraordinary picture to the world of what we were intended to be. God and humanity joined together in heart and purpose. I close, I close with this quote because... We have to end on a practical note. Hopefully it's all been practical. But we have to end where we started. Remember the quote to begin with? That doctrine has to be relatable to life or it makes an argument against the truth of Christianity. Well, Julie uh, Canlis is saying the same thing but differently. Because it's not just simply, okay, work out your salvation for your own benefit and for the benefit of the world. That's a grand idea. But how do you do that? You do that in your ordinary life. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be a spiritual leader in some capacity through a missionary and organization to do this. That wasn't true for most of these people in the church in Philippi. But rather, live as ordinary persons, and as you live in light of Christ and shine as a light in your ordinary life, doing your ordinary stuff, guess what? it causes the light of Jesus to shine even more. And so as we come to the um, conclusion of this section and look 
ahead to where we're going next week um, as we finish out chapter 2, Paul's going to continue to get practical. And he's going to get so practical that we're going to find out about his friends, such as Timothy and uh, Epaphroditus. And so um, this theme is going to be consistent and ongoing throughout the letter, um, that the life of Christ is meant to be a practical life. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would take your word, that you would shine it brightly into our hearts so that it might become a part of who we are and so that it might become a part of our ordinary living in the world. Help us as your people to shine brightly as lights in a dark world. We pray that you would use us for your glory. Amen.